welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Hebrews 5, 11 through 6, 12. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For lamb that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and to its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word as we take in for what you have here for us in this book. We pray, Lord, that you'd open our hearts, Lord. We pray that even as we're seeing in this passage, that you would make our hearts good soil for your word. Lord, we pray that your spirit would so till up the, the hard spots, the, the dry spots in our heart, and your spirit would infuse water and cause the gospel to grow in us. Lord, this is a work only you can do. We pray that you do it. We're thankful, so thankful that you've come to meet with us over and over again every week. And so we look forward to it again today. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, here we are in the fifth chapter of, of Hebrews. We've been working our way through it. And if you don't have a Bible, just go ahead on your phone and just Google Hebrews 5 ESV and you can follow along. It's a lot more fun if you follow along. It's a lot more interesting than to see what's here, and we're going to dig into the very parts of this passage. But here he is in chapter 5, and uh, the writer of Hebrews has this amazing teaching he wants to break into about how Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is our representative before God. And he wants to explain how Jesus can be a high priest even though Jesus is not from the line of Aaron. And so he's going to launch into this whole thing talking about how Jesus is a priest from the order of Melchizedek. But even as he does this, he senses a problem. As he launches into this amazing subject, he can almost feel 
his readers' eyes glazing over and their eyelids dropping down and them getting more and more sleepy and disinterested. He can sense that they just don't have the interest to go further. Maybe you're like that. I started talking about the priestly line of Melchizedek, and you immediately felt that glazing over. But that's, that's what he's feeling from his audience. He's concerned that they just don't have the concentration to go further, and he sees that as a really bad sign. And so he just calls him out. Look at verse 11. He says about this, about Melchizedek and the priesthood, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain because you've become dull of hearing. He's so concerned about their spiritual condition, this dullness they have towards Jesus, that he just shelves the whole topic of Melchizedek until chapter 7. As you could see in the beginning of 5, he's starting to talk about Melchizedek. He doesn't talk about him again until 7 because he wants to take care of this first. He sees this dullness they have. That word in verse 11 can mean sluggish, lazy, lethargic. It's a dullness. It occurs again in Hebrews 6, 12. So you've kind of got bookends. You've got the word uh, dullness here, and then in 6, 12, you've got sluggishness. It's the same Greek word. So there's kind of one thing he's doing. There's bookends on this passage. And what we're going to see is this dullness that we can have towards Christ. It's stunting. Uh, It's dangerous. And then thankfully, it's reversible. So that's the three things we're going to look at this morning. First, dullness to Christ is stunting. There's a dullness, there's a spiritual sluggishness that stunts your growth. He says here, you know, you guys ought to be teachers by now. Look at verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. And now he's not saying here that every single person in the church should should be a preacher type teacher, like what I'm doing right now. In fact, in James 3.1, it says that not many of you should be teachers and that we're going to actually receive a... Uh, harsher judgment uh, held to a higher standard than the rest. The author of Hebrews here is saying that every believer should, should be growing in their knowledge of the Lord such that they can lead others to know the Lord in a deeper way. All of us should be in that camp. All of us should be learning more about the Lord so that we can share what we know with others. I mean, that's part of the Great Commission, right? He says, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. This kind of teaching is a role of every believer, Um, We teach friends, we teach other people in this room, we teach our kids. The church isn't just a couple of teachers and a whole bunch of learners. We're all learners and teachers, right? Uh, We're all in this together as a hive of discipleship, helping one another to know and follow Christ deeper and closer. It's something for all of us, which is really exciting, really, when you compare it to some other Christian traditions where you have a priest and you have the people. In, in, In the biblical way of thinking, we're all teaching, we're all learning, we're all helping one another grow. But their, their dullness here is stunting their growth. They weren't able to teach others. Not only were they not able to teach others, they weren't even really able to digest what he wanted to teach them. He says, by now you ought to be able to handle solid food. Look at verse 12. You need milk, not solid food. By the way, this commentary I was reading, um, it was talking about the different parts of this passage. And for these first few verses, it says, the writer of Hebrews, number one, shames them. That was like the first section where he shames them. And that's what it does sound like, right? We're not used to shame as a motivator, but this is kind of shameful, right? He says, you need milk, not solid food. You don't want to talk to another adult that way, right? Some dude talking to another adult, you need milk, you know? Like, it's shameful. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. When I was in veterinary school, I had a friend in vet school who, um, who ate baby food regularly, publicly. 
Okay, so here we are in our first quarter of veterinary school. It's UC Davis, world-class school. It's amazing. We sit down for lunch, and we hear Sean popping the top on another one of those little glass bottles to eat his baby food. In that reaction you're having right now, that's what the writer of Hebrews is feeling about these people. He's like, something's not right here, right? Something's, he's like, I like the taste. I'm like, mm, do that at home, <laughs> right? Verse 12 says, you need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. And it isn't just that they prefer baby food like Sean did. It's they can't digest anything else. They have serious spiritual digestive problems. Look at verse 14. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have had their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. There's a, there's a way of engaging with the Word of God every day, of taking it in, of, of consuming the Word of God, a habit of it that makes it so that you can digest more and more of God's Word and apply more and more of God's Word. And you find in the beginning, when you first start studying God's Word, it seems very hard. And then as you kind of practice and take it in more and more, you start to see the fruit of it. You, your, your soul develops like um, taste buds for different parts of Scripture that you didn't have before. And, and your soul gets digestive enzymes to where you can, you can digest and take in things you couldn't before. It's important to notice, though, guys, in this passage that he's not saying they have an intelligence problem. He's not saying, I'd like to tell you this, but you guys are just dumb. He doesn't say that, right? It's not an intelligence problem. And it's not that the information's too hard. What is it? It's not a lack of intelligence. It's a lack of interest. They're just not that interested. They just aren't interested enough in the things of Christ to spend the time to learn anything more about him. They've kind of seen him and done that, and they're just kind of content with what they have, right? That's what's going on here. It, their lack of depth is a lack of desire. Because really, guys, this passage isn't saying that all Christians have to be like super intellectual. It's not saying that. There's all sorts of di different types of, of believers. It's not saying that we're justified based on our theological knowledge. Oh, if that were true. No, it's saying that there's a lack of depth in these people, and it's due to a lack of desire, right? It isn't like they're failing the theology test, and that's the bad sign. The bad sign is the lack of desire, right? Dullness to Christ, guys, it looks like what we do with family members or friends when they come up to us and they want to talk to us, but we also want to look at our phones. And what do you do? What's your standard thing you say while you're trying to look at your phone and somebody wants to talk to you? Uh-huh, uh-huh, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, really? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right? You do something like that. Some sort of noise that says, you know, I hope you don't catch me, but I'm not listening to you. Right? And some of us do that with the Lord, right? We're kind of like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. grace. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Cross. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Did I just, mm -hmm, the Holy Spirit? This is crazy, right? God wants to interact with me, his creature. And I'm like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, I know about that. You know, we see that. We can see that in our own hearts. Somebody comes to us and they want to talk to us about the things of the Lord. And they're like, oh, yeah, I learned that before. You know, I, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm done with that. You know, there's a dullness there. He says that you should have built something on this foundation by now. Look at verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance for dead works or of faith towards God or instructions in washings or the laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead or eternal judgment. This we will do if God permits. Now, some have seen that passage, and they've, they've kind of misread it to say that at some point you move beyond the gospel. You know, the gospel's for getting in. 
to the Christian life, and maybe for a little while, and then you got to move on to deeper things. Then you move on to things like, you know, principles of Christian living and disciplines and deep theology and stuff like that. I don't think that's what he's saying here. The gospel isn't just the elementary doctrines. Um, it's, it's not just the starting point. It's the thing we live on. It's the thing that fuels us. The gospel is the thing that we need to drill down deeper into, actually, and have our lives built upon. So he's not saying we leave it. And he uses a helpful metaphor here that would help us to figure this out. He calls it a foundation, right? And um, he's saying, like, you guys, what you do is you seem to lay the foundation and then break it up, and then you lay it again, and then you break it up, and then you lay it again. There's no progress there. But also, guys, you don't lay a foundation here and then drive over there and build a building either, right? Foundation is super important. You keep the foundation. You rely on the foundation. You, you uh, rest in the foundation. You, you drill down into the foundation. You're built up from a foundation, right? That's the way the gospel functions in our, in our maturity. We, we drill down into it. In the beginning, you, you, you learn the gospel. And a really simple way of thinking about the gospel is in four words. God, man, cross, response, right? So God is a good God. He's a gracious God. He created all this so he could have a relationship with his with his creatures. Um, he's a good God. He's also a just God, which is a good thing. Human beings made in his image, made to love him and enjoy him, have turned their backs on him. We've rejected him. We've sinned against him. We're fallen. We're sinful. We're under his judgment. Cross, God sends his own son to become a man, to die for our sins, to, to make us right with him. And then response, faith and repentance, right? How, how do I get this? How can I have this? It's really simple. It's just to turn and, and cling to Christ, right? It's not that you're going to somehow work your way up or straighten out your life or, you know, some of you guys have tried that. Some of you guys have been like, you know, yeah, I'll start, you know, being, you know, close with God. I'll have a relationship with him when I get my life straightened out. So you're going to do that on your own first. How's that going? Is that going well for you guys? It's not, it never went well for me, right? We just need to turn and, and, and trust in Christ, and that's how we receive all the benefits, But what he's saying here is we don't want to stop with a superficial understanding of the gospel. Because it turns out the gospel has layers, doesn't it? It has depths to it. You know, if you were going to, you know, move beyond just elementary principles, you might want to start asking some more questions like, okay, God, man, cross, response. Okay, what about God? Like, what's he like? How could I know him more? Who is he? You know, what are his attributes? What does it look like to have a real relationship with him, right? So there's depth to the gospel there, right? Or man, who are we? What does it mean to be a creature? What does it mean to have our identity decided by him, not ourselves, and how to live into that? And what does it mean to be fallen, you know? There's all kinds of depth to the gospel, right? That thing that you were like, oh, yeah, I heard the gospel, but yeah, but what about questions deeper? Or the cross, you know? You think about like, well, how did the Father plan this salvation of mine before, you know, before he made the world and in election and, and how he chose me. Like, I'd like to know more about that. That's a gospel thing. Or I'd like to know more about, like, what did it mean that Jesus became a man? You know, Josh had a message on the passage last week, on the passage before. It was talking about Jesus' humanity. You might want to drill into that. Like, how is it that he remains God and yet becomes a man? That's fascinating. We might want to know more about that. You see how there's layers here. And then how does the Holy Spirit uh, make those... Um, those works of the Father and the Son effective in my own heart. You know, how could I have him dwell in me more richly in a way that would empower me? And then response, you know, faith and repentance. I got questions about that. Don't you have questions about that? Like, what does real faith look like? What does it mean to believe? How could I find pockets of unbelief in me now that I could have, you know, uh, renewed and strengthened so I trusted him more? 
what do we mean repentance? Where are some other areas I need to repent? What does it look like to truly turn from sin? How do I grow in my trust for God, right? So there's tons of depth here is what I'm trying to say. You have this really simple outline, but then you have all these things that you could drill down into and, uh, and become deeper in so that you have more and more stability in your life because you've burrowed, you've kind of drilled down and affixed yourself to the gospel. And then this foundation metaphor works too because that's what you're built up from, right? So the, the building is built up from a foundation, you know? His problem here is that they keep laying the foundation. They just never really built anything on it. But what he's saying here is that you should have built something on this foundation by now. Our, our lives are built up from the foundation of the gospel. The gospel ends up supporting and strengthening everything about our lives. You think about like your relationships and how a deeper belief in the gospel and a deeper understanding of grace would change your relationships with other people, right? Cause you to forgive them, right? Cause you to be more patient with them. Um, show you how to love them better. It would change the way you interacted with your work. Right? It would change the way your emotions operated. That's a tough one, right? Emotions are like these crazy wild animals, completely feral, you know, and you're just trying to rein them in, you know, and the gospel has the ability to help us to, to rein in those emotions and to have them be more God-glorifying. Your marriage, your parenting, your relationship with unbelievers, all this being built up from a foundation of the gospel. So it's not moving beyond the gospel as if the gospel is a foundation over here, we're going to build over here, but it's, it's growing down deeper into the gospel and then having your life grow up out of it. And just like a building, you know, as you build on a foundation, that building is pushing harder and harder and harder into that foundation, right? That as, as we grow, that we're pressing more and more into Christ and what he's done for us and what he's doing for us, and the gospel becomes richer. I was reading this week, just so happens. It's weird how the Lord brings things like this together. I'm reading this article, and I'm like, this is a crazy article, and then I'm like, this is an illustration, you know? This happens all the time. It's crazy. But I was reading about this 58-story luxury building in San Francisco called the Millennium Tower. Have you guys heard of this? So it's this amazing building. It's amazing, beautiful. It's beautiful like all the buildings in San Francisco are beautiful. I mean, that place is like an architecture museum. It's crazy when you drive around and you see all these amazing buildings, all different types. So this one's, you know, real modern, real glass, and it's beautiful, though. It's 58 stories, luxury, you know, celebrities were buying places in it before it was built, but there's a problem. You guys know what it is? It's tilting. Yeah, that's not good. So it's 58 stories, and it's tilting about 26 inches to the west, okay, which, you know, toward the ocean, so that's good. Um, the problem is, if it gets 40 inches, then your plumbing stops working, and your elevators can't kind of go up the chaff because, you know, it's not meant to go to side angle, right? I was thinking about that. I was like, man, you'd be like, you know, you guys don't feel bad for rich people probably, but I feel bad for them. Like they built this place, they were excited, and now they live in this tilted building. And like how many of you guys could still live in it? They're like, it's safe, it won't fall over. No, right? You're thinking about it all the time. Like if it's tilting five inches, I'm done. You know, so there's all these people, and they're living in this building, and it's tilting, and they bought spaces in this building. What would you do? You know, so they're trying to get in under there, and like, don't worry. I'm just going to put some stuff underneath and prop it up. <laughs> and it's like, I don't know, you know, like with a table maybe, but people live in this thing. But I'll tell you what you do if that's your life, right? You take a look at that foundation. You look and see, like, why is my life so turbulent? Why am I not, you know, able to live in this way for the Lord? And you think about that gospel foundation. That's what you should do. Not just try harder, 
just try and shove some things under there and kind of prop it up. No, you want to take a deeper look at what is the most important thing to you guys. It's the gospel, right? The writer of Hebrews here, he sees these believers, they're tilting. (laughs) Their lives are unstable. Their lives are unstable because they need to more regularly take in the word of God. Remember back to verse 14? Solid food is for the mature, for those who have the powers of discernment trained by constant practice to be able to discern good from evil. Um, There's a stability, there's a discernment that comes from regularly consuming God's word, right? Remember the problem in this text is that these are Jewish believers who are thinking about going back to Judaism. They would never have done that if they had discernment, right? If they had been regularly uh, strengthened by the word of God. So how about you? you, Are you unstable? I'm not talking about your circumstances because your life could be completely on fire because of circumstances. That is not anything you can do anything about. And it's not your fault, and it's just the way it is. But the core, you know, the inside of you. Are you unstable? Are you undiscerning? Are you quick to drift? I mean, there's some believers, you probably know some of them, that, like, you can't leave these people alone for more than a couple days, and they'll drift. Why is that? It's a foundational issue, right? And so, ultimately, our belief and our reliance on the gospel is what empowers every part of our lives. And so we need to look deeper at that. So dullness is stunting. Secondly, dullness is dangerous. This is where the passage gets really intense, okay? So he says that dullness to Christ is dangerous because apostasy can be permanent. Look at verse 4. For in this case, for it is impossible in the case of those who are once enlightened, who tasted of the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. So his concern here is not like that these believers will remain infants forever. He doesn't see that as a possibility. They're going to start growing or they're going to fall away completely. And he says there is a type of falling away from Christ that's permanent. He says it's impossible to restore them again to repentance. And so here's his concern. He goes, okay, well, how does this all fit together? He's noticing their dullness, and now he gives them this big warning. And the reason is, is that for some people, that dullness to Christ, that that lack of interest, is the beginning of them falling away forever. That's why he's linking these two. That's how these two link together. And guys, this passage probably comes as no surprise to you. People have often taught as, as teaching that true Christians can lose their salvation. I don't think this passage is teaching that at all, okay? Um, there are people that say that this passage says that people that become born again can become spiritually dead again. People that have been justified in Christ can become condemned again. People that are in Christ can somehow kind of slip out of Christ, all right? Some people teach that with this passage, and it does look on first reading like these people are are true Christians that fall away from Christ, but on closer reading, he doesn't actually say that, okay? You read it closely, it does look like they're true Christians that fall away. That's kind of the point because they looked like they were, okay? But it doesn't actually say that they were saved. Check it out. It says those who were once enlightened, Okay, so these are people that, that had the benefit of a very deep understanding of God and his ways. They were enlightened. It says that they tasted of the heavenly gift. You know, that they, they experienced some of the benefits of being around the gospel, of being around God's people. It says they shared in the Holy Spirit. That one sounds like a believer, but not saying they're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. In some way, sharing of some of the benefits of the Spirit's operation amongst the people of God. Um, it says that they tasted the goodness of the word of God. Um, so that they, they took in the word and they thought, you know, this is helpful. This makes me feel better. This is making my life a little bit better. And we've all experienced this, guys. 
We all know people that, you know, seem to respond to the word and then stopped responding to the word, right? And it says they've tasted the powers of the age to come. Where would that have been? Would have been the context of the local church. They would have seen God at work in ways that are really obviously God. And there's some of you in this room probably that that haven't yet come to Christ, um, but you can't deny it's true. You know, you're just trying to figure out when's the best time to move on this. Do you guys know when the best time to move on this is? Right now, yeah, the book of Hebrews says today is the day of salvation, right? And so if you're like, no, this is true, it's like then take hold of him. So he doesn't actually say that these people are justified or regenerate or indwelt by the Spirit or united to Christ. They were a part of the covenant community. They enjoyed the benefits of the word and the Spirit. They were enlightened. They tasted things. They shared in things, but they were never truly saved, and they left. They sprang up for a while, and then they died out. And we see that in Jesus' parable, the sower. They were what Jesus would call the rocky soil or the bad soil. There was some little bit of growth, and then it just kind of fizzled out. He uses an agricultural metaphor here. Look at verse 7. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless, near to being burned, and its end is, sorry, near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. What he's saying there in this passage is that those verses 4 through 5, all those tasting of God's work and seeing God's work, that was all rain. That was God pouring grace on a person over and over and over and over again, but then nothing came of it. Instead, it was a life of fruitlessness, and they turned, and they became like a, like a field of thorns and thistles, right? Field of thorns that's cursed and burned. And, and that might sound like severe language, but, but the thing you got to realize about apostasy, which is turning from Christ permanently, somebody that was kind of close to Christ in some way and turns permanently away, is that apostasy is personal. Apostasy is ultimately contempt for Christ and his sacrifice. Apostasy isn't just that God poured out this grace on you, you didn't produce, right? It's way more personal than that. Take a look at verse 6. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him to contempt. Apostasy, guys, is ultimately contempt for Christ. It's, it's eventually just losing interest in him. You know, seeing who he is, seeing what he did, but then seeing the world and what it has to offer and what sin has to offer is better and just leaving him. That's personal, right? That's really personal. I mean, it's one thing to be rejected by a person that doesn't really know you. Like on the freeway. I take those very personally, okay? You shouldn't, though. You know, you don't know that guy. You're not going to see that guy again. He's disappointed you're driving. My wife's always like, just don't look in your rearview mirror. Like, just don't look, you know? So that's the solution. But it's one thing to be rejected by somebody that doesn't even know you. It's another thing for somebody that really knows you well to reject you. And that's what's happening in apostasy is that person sees Christ, not in a saving way, but sees them, him close up, knows who he is, and then turns his back on him. And that's why it's the strong language here. It's personal. It's a personal rejection of Jesus and his sacrifice. But guys, I want to remind you, true Christians will never fall away. And why won't we ever fall away? We won't fall away because the Lord holds us, right? Didn't Jesus talk about that? He said that um, my father, you know, that, that we're held in his hand and no one can take us out of his hand. Isn't that amazing? Because I'm thinking like, okay, it's God's grip on us. 
not our grip on him that keeps, keeps us secure, right? So you think about a little kid, you think about a father and a little kid, and they're walking, they're holding hands, and they're walking holding hands near traffic. What makes that kid safe? Kid's grip? No. No. You'd squeeze that little kid's hand right off if he tried to, like, run into traffic, right? It's his grip on us, not our grip on him. Guys, if I could lose my salvation, I already would have. Daily, right? And so would you, right? There are church traditions like that, you know? Come to Christ, you fall into sin, you kind of didn't fall away, but you fell down. And it's like, well, you need to get saved again. You need to get saved again. You need to get saved again. You get saved over and over again because it's all up to you. It's not up to you. It's his grip on us. So you might ask then, you might go, okay, this is probably your natural question. This is a great question, actually. Is if Christians can't fall away permanently, why does he warn them against it? Like, is he giving them warnings that are unnecessary? God doesn't give any unnecessary warnings. What's going on here? Guys, warnings like this are a means of grace to actual Christians. Warnings like this work perfectly for the people they're intended for. Warnings like this work perfectly for God's people. God's people will see a warning like this. They'll see that dullness in their hearts, and they'll turn. It's a means of grace for those who are truly saved. Guys, truly regenerate people will see this warning. Maybe you did this morning, and you'll think, oh, no, I'm going to turn around. You know, I had some ideas for what I was going to do this afternoon or this week or with my life, and I, after hearing a warning like that, I'm going to turn around. It's doing what it was meant to do. It's like you're driving down a country road in the dark. You can hardly see, and it's a fast road, maybe going 55 or something, and you see a sign that says, warning, collapse bridge ahead. The believer is going to see a warning like this in, in Scripture and go, whoop, turn around. Those who are not his are going to see that, and they're going to sail right on by. And so if you hear a warning like that, and it, and it disturbs you, and it causes you to turn and come back to Christ, then it's doing exactly what it should do. It's doing exactly what it should do. It's working perfectly for the one it's intended for. And that might be you this morning. You might be somebody that's like, man, I read this, and this hits close to home. I've been a believer for a long time. I've seen very little growth in my life. You know, I, I realize that now that it isn't just that I'm not kind of the intellectual type or something, I just don't have that much interest in Christ. I just don't have that much personal desire for him. You might see this warning and go, okay, this, this sounds like me, and I've got a lot of things competing for my attention, and there's a lot of things that are more interesting than Christ, and I've grown dull and sluggish to him and lethargic. If today this warning concerns you and calls you back, then that's an awesome sign. That's the evidence of God's grace in your life. And this is exactly what this was intended for. This warning is a warning for God's beloved. Take a look at verse 9. Look at what he calls you. If, if you hear the scriptures and you respond to the scriptures today and, and cling hold of Christ, this is who you are. Listen to this, verse 9. Though we speak in this way, this is so great because the passage is a tough passage. I mean, the beginning is like, you know, kind of shaming him, you know, and then, and then goes from that to fear, you know. This, this warning's intense. And I love his heart here in verse 9. He says, though we speak this way, Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things belonging to salvation. Guys, this warning is for God's beloved. If you heed it today, you are his beloved. And we don't use that word very much. I really like the word, but if I said beloved all the time when I was preaching, you guys would be like, no, no, bro. We're not inviting people here. Like, you sound like you're from the 1700s. But it's a beautiful word, isn't it? 
it means loved one, but loved one's kind of fraught because that makes it sound like you're, you know, your natural family. It's, it's, it's loved people. You're his loved one. He loves you. You guys remember the angel called Daniel that when he appeared to Daniel the prophet, he said, he said to him, he addressed him as, oh, Daniel, greatly loved. Isn't that cool? Like the angel was like, man, we've been hearing about you. It's nice to meet you because God talks about you all the time. This guy's crazy about you. You know, greatly loved one. And what's neat is that if you're in Christ, guys, that's you. Greatly loved one. Beloved. Talking about you all the time. The angel's like, I don't know what. He's seizing these people, you know. But he just, he just adores you. You're beloved. And so dullness to Christ is stunting. It's dangerous. And lastly, it's reversible. This will be pretty quick. Dullness to Christ is reversible. Look at verse 11. It says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. So real apostasy, turning from Christ in, in the way we described is permanent, but dullness, dullness is happily very reversible. And I say that because of verse 11. See the word earnestness? That's the opposite. He's saying it's reversible. So if this warning concerns you, and you want to return to Christ today, and you want to run to him in repentance, and you want to take hold of him, what I don't want this passage to do is to make you think that somehow you're the apostate in verse 6, and you can't. That's not you. If you want Christ today, if you want to return to him today, if you want to repent of your sin and grab hold of him today, you're not the apostate in verse 6, obviously. Those people can't return to repentance because they don't want to, right? They saw Christ close up, they rejected him finally, and they do not want him. But you, this morning, you want him. You're tired of being dull to him, you know? Aren't you tired of being dull to him? So you can be a non-Christian and kind of enjoy the world, enjoy, quotation marks, enjoy the world to some degree. Or you can be a Christian and you can be earnest and really enjoying the Lord, but it really stinks to be dull, doesn't it? You guys are like, I don't know. Come on. <laughs> Never felt that before. Okay, whatever. It's terrible, right? I mean, it's the most miserable state to be kind of in this dull, kind of unrepentant, kind of, you know, not really enjoying all the blessings of Christ. But you're tired of that. You know, if you drifted and, and you want to come to the Lord and have your dullness removed, he'll do it. You know, you can be assured that the Father's arms are open wide to you. Anyone here that's like, man, I have wandered from Christ. I have drifted. I want him. It's like the prodigal son, the father's like. Come on. He's running towards you, even before you're running to him. So how do we respond to this dullness? How do we heed this warning and get our dullness healed? And this won't take very long. I just say, just come back. Right? Just come back. There's not like a 12-step process to having your dullness to Christ healed. You should really just come back. Okay, that'd be the simplest way to do it. Because you're not going to get a book or something and make this happen, okay? You're going to come back. And I just say when we take communion, come back. You know, be fed by him, by the, by the Lord's Supper. And, and pray and ask him to awaken your heart. Now, I think the best thing to do would be to ask him to do it. Because did you notice verse 3? Verse 3 says, and this we will do if God permits. Guys, God's the only one that's got the power to change your heart. He's the only one that's got the ability to awaken you again. Pray for it. Seek him. Ask somebody here to pray with you and for you throughout this week that, that you would be stirred up for desire for him again. 
And, and I want to leave you with one thing that would really help. Psalm 119, if you're in a place of dullness to Christ, I'm going to point you to the longest chapter in the Bible, which is Psalm 119. There's so many great prayers in there. I'm going to read a couple of them to you. So you're in this place of dullness and dryness and just... The Lord's trying to teach you new things about himself, and you're just like, mm-hmm, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, mm-hmm, right? Check this out. Open up God's word. Get in Psalm 119, and use some of the prayers that he has here. Look at this one, verse 17. Deal bountifully with your servant that I might live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things in your law. You're like, open my dull, sluggish, lethargic, lazy eyes so that I can see your glory. Show me your beauty and in such a way that would just rattle me. You ever been rattled? You ever read a part of scripture and just been like, whoa, I am so awake right now. <laughs> it's like you're on the road and you look down and nobody looks at their phone while they're driving, but let's say you did. And you looked up and you're like coming out of car and you are so awake. Like, Lord, give me an awakeness to you. Or verse 32, I love this the prayer. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Did you love that? You guys feel like you have a little heart, a little teeny heart that's just not really drawn to Christ right now? I mean, sometimes, many times, I'll have this like tiny little frozen raisin heart, right? It's like a frozen raisin. You just say, Lord, take my tiny frozen raisin heart and make it big and fill it with your spirit and cause it to beat for you. You pray that. He'll answer that. There's no way the Lord's like, pick something else. <laughs> you know, like, the Lord's going to be like, yes, let's do that. Or look at this one, uh, verse 37 of Psalm 119. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. This would be a good one. And give me life according to your ways. And when he does this, guys, recognize it as the miracle that it is. Isn't it a miracle when God does this? It's a miracle. God did something. Thank him. One last one I want to give you. Psalm 119, 135. Make your face shine upon your servant. Teach me your statutes. Because that's what we want, right? When we get in the word, we're not just like, it isn't like we're just trying to like tighten up our theology. We want to see God, right? We want to see the face of God. And the face that you're going to see in the scriptures when you pray that prayer is you're going to see the face of Jesus, Right? face of Jesus, the one whose life was the only life that was perfect soil for God's word. Jesus, the one whose life bore perfect fruit that earned God's blessing. And yet on the cross, he took the curse that our contempt deserved. Those thorns that our lives had produced were, were twisted into a crown and put on his head. It pierced his head. He took the curse we deserved and gave us the blessing that he had earned. And when we see that face, then we're awake. Then we're new. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we want to see that face. And Lord, I just pray that even as we go home today, even in the evening, in the time that we have that's available to us, or in the morning, and Lord, any time we feel that sense towards you of just dullness, just... Just kind of a seen that, been there, moving on, feeling towards you. We pray, Lord, that you would awaken us. And we thank you, Lord, that you want that relationship. You want us to be present. You want us to be all there because you love us and you've created us for that relationship. And so 
We just pray, Lord, that we would more and more live into that, that we would delight to live as your sons and your daughters, righteous in Jesus, forgiven in him, our eternity secure, safe in your hand. And then all of our days, we just delight to be with you and to know you and enjoy you. You are so good, and we are so crazy to look to other things. So we pray you'd heal that. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covgraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.